Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy will not outwit him. The wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. This is verses 19 to 24 of Psalm 89, verses 19 to 52 of which are appointed for the psalm for today, Monday, November the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along as we move these last two weeks uh, to Advent. We're going to be looking at different prophets uh, during this period of time. You know, we just sort of... uh, kind of took a quick run through the book of Joel, and now we're going to jump into Habakkuk today, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and then skip down to verse 9 and and go through verse 20, and we're in the gospel according to Luke in chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, and then in um, the epistle of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. <clears throat> so in the Habakkuk um, passage, he's confused because he doesn't understand, is God bringing judgment against uh, the people of Israel or not? And so he, he, he doesn't know how to interpret everything, so he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And that's one of the things that's difficult, I think, in in the Christian walk is to, to, to wait and to be patient, to believe God said something to you and then to wait for the fulfillment of that. Um, it's a, it's a much more difficult thing to do, to wait for the fulfillment of it. And you see that right, in the Abraham story, because in chapter 12, he's called, and he's told to go, go out from this place, and go to the place that I'll show you, and then he's promised a group of things, including offspring. And then now skip forward to chapter 15, and he has just defeated uh, the kings, um, so he, he was going to rescue his nephew Lot, and he, he defeated the kings in battle, he and his thir- 318 men, and then they, they come back, and, and the Lord says to him, I will be your shield, and your reward is very great. And Abraham's response is, well, what will you give me, seeing as you have not given me offspring yet? He's waited a long time at this point, and, then, and he's, he's, everything else has more or less come true. God's shown him the land. He's prospered him. He's given him all this stuff, has a great name. Uh, the name is established. But the problem is, is that there's no heir. For him to pass it on to. And the Lord says, come outside, look up in the sky, count the stars if you're able to do that. And then if it, that's how many descendants you'll have. And then it says that he believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, how do you see that, right? I mean, that's the thing is, how do you see that? But, but the waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise sometimes is, is easily the most difficult part of it. He said, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. 
Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And get kind of a feeling of the the myth of Sisyphus who has cheated death a couple of times, and then ultimately death gets its revenge by forcing Sisyphus to push a rock up a hill interminably throughout eternity and and never get to the top of the hill. It rolls down before he gets there, and, and that's what God's saying here. He says, you know, I make it so that their work and their effort is futile, and they gain nothing from it. For the earth will be filled, he says, for the, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It, it'll be that complete. And the waters covering the sea, is, is, it's, it's, an, it's a fascinating way of saying something to me. I, I just love that, to think about the waters covering the sea. And, and so there's they're saying there's two different things, but, but they're inextricably tied to one another and indistinguishable from one another. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. So, so what he's saying is, is that you're trying to get your neighbors drunk so that you can, you know, spy on them, peek at them, view their naked bodies in the same way, for instance, that that we see with Noah's son. Right. So so that the ham line then becomes cursed because of that. And he says, all right, here, how about this instead? So you have tried to expose your neighbors. How about this? You drink that wine and expose your uncircumcision, which is the 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 circum- uncircumcision of the heart is what he's getting at. The cup in the Lord's hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So he's accusing his own people of being an, uh, a, a people avaricious for war who, who, you, who are mistreating others. <clears throat> what profit is an idol when its maker is shaped at a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Are you serious? You're worshiping idols that you yourselves made? Well, that goes back to the golden calf, right? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So he's accusing his people of multiple things here, um, and none, and the final thing is idolatry. So they have not loved their neighbors as themselves because they've gotten their neighbors drunk in order that they might see their nakedness, and then they have not loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and they have made images and idols and worshipped those things. So it doesn't get much worse than breaking sort of the, the uh, summary of the law, right? Failure to love God and failure to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's bringing a serious charges against his own people. In the gospel today, this is an interesting one, because the question always is, arises about whether this is uh, a parable or whether it's a real story that Jesus is telling, because he doesn't introduce it as a parable. He just says this, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, that, there's a part of that, right, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table that sounds like the prodigal son. Because remember, what he said was he, he desired to be fed even with the pods that were given to the pigs, but nobody gave him anything. And, and he's such a pathetic character, Lazarus here is, in, in this story or parable, that, that the dogs came and licked his sores because he, he's unable to, to keep them from doing that. I mean, it's just a terrible picture. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Very different. Very different idea. The angels bore this Lazarus up to the bosom of Abraham while this rich man died and they buried him. Nothing about his soul. And in Hades, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. So he knew who he was. He had apparently just ignored him all his life while Lazarus was outside his gate, at his gate. He, He had ignored him, hadn't provided anything for him. But now he, he obviously knows exactly who it is when he sees him and asks that, that Lazarus be given a task, and that is to, to help him in his hour of need. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if anybody had had qualified to be the the neighbor of this rich man, it would clearly have been the guy at his gate, Lazarus, and yet he ignored him. So he, you had all your good things then, and you chose to keep them all for yourself and ignore the idea of loving your neighbor. And so now you're stuck. You're stuck where you are. He says, and besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he, the man, said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I mean, there's something um, noble about that request, right? At least... He's trying to spare his own brothers from the torment that he has. Now, he's not extending that beyond his immediate family and not asking for anyone else to receive this visitation, but but it's at least noble enough that he wants his brothers to have that. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He, Abraham, said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus is laying the groundwork for the, the truth in the gospel. What he's saying here is, is that those people's hardness of heart will prevent them from actually even repenting if someone comes back from the dead to tell them this. And so, no, that the sign will be given, but they won't believe anyway. But as I said, the man, you know, he didn't care about Lazarus in life, but he did know his name. And even in death, the only people he cares about are his family. You know, what if he had made an appeal that said, don't, don't just go to my brothers, but go to all my brothers and sisters. And that when Jesus reshapes the family 
um, by, by saying that who are the people who are my mother and brothers and fathers and sisters? They're the ones who know the will of God and do it. And so here, this guy, his circle is pretty limited. People that even, even now, the people he cares about is a relatively limited circle of people. And so he, he pleads for them to go to his brothers, and Abraham said it isn't going to make any difference. Their hearts are so hardened that even should somebody come back from the dead, they're not going to repent. And, it, and it's true. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true today. People just don't believe it. So they're not going to believe just because somebody is claimed to have been rescued or come back from the dead and resurrected uh, as Jesus was. So everybody will not believe that. There's, there's a hardness of heart that comes in, and, and it can run in a family. I mean, you can see it again and again and again. Unless God steps in and does something, then, then that whole family line is going to be lost. And James talks about here the, so the positive side of what to do, but he casts it in a negative way. So he's, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith, parentheses, without works, save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. It, I wish <laughs> that more pastors preached it and, and more Christians understood that truth that James preaches here. Um, James is not saying that faith is worthless. He said it's not even properly called faith unless it's accompanied by works. I need to see you, your, your, your faith, what you believe, calls you to action. If it didn't, then the incarnation itself wouldn't make any sense. God didn't just say that he loved us. He came, and he showed that he loved us. He proved himself. He proved his love. He had proved himself again and again to the Israelites. He had shown them, you know, he he took them out of Egypt. He gave them the land. He, He did everything in the world for them. He brought them back from Babylon. He had done all this stuff. There's no way to end the recounting of what God has done. And yet, we, we still ask him to prove himself again and again and again. Now, he's willing to do that, but there comes a time when it's, you've got to stand in faith. I can't give you any more signs. You've got to just believe. There's some times that, that we don't have any choice except to believe. And so James says, well, somebody's going to argue about this. They're going to say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So he says, you know, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, working itself isn't good enough. You've got to work from faith. And that's one of the reasons in the Anglican world, one of the things that when, you're, when you teach the articles of religion, which are sort of the 39 core beliefs of Anglicans, one of the things they say that, that, that um, good works before faith enters the picture are, are not even good because they're not done in faith for the glory of God. They're just nice things that people do. And that's exactly what this says. If you, if you, you can't show me your faith apart from your works, but I can show you my faith by my works. I can show you what I believe by what I do. It, it, it controls and rules my life. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Great. And remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to a Jewish community, to the, to the diaspora. The, the, the Jewish communities dispersed across the face of the earth. And so he says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Well, that is the central tenet of Judaism. That is from the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6, that, that the Lord your God is one. 
It's the main thing. And he says, okay, you do that. Okay, you do well. But you know what? Here's the deal. Even demons believe and shudder. So he said that belief should cause you to have the fear of the Lord, just like it does the demons. If you don't even react as well as demons do to that truth, then do you really believe it? He said, so do you want to be shown, you foolish people, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. I mean, his faith was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, and all he did was believe. But ultimately, that belief had to be tested. And the testing comes in Genesis 22, when the Lord tells him to take your son, your only son, the one you love, and take him to the mountain showing to you and sacrifice him to me there. So, yes, he believed, but, but that belief was put to a test by God, and Abraham passed the test. That's how he showed that he had faith in God, was he obeyed God. He says, so you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So, yes, the hour I first believed is important. It's critical, because without it, you can't please God. But ultimately, it's got to move beyond just an intellectual um, assent to a propositional truth. And then it's got to become, okay, so what does it mean that God is one? Well, it means that I should stand in fear and awe before him. And the fact that he loves, and I, and I should seek to know him. And I should seek to do the things that he approves of. That's the point that, that James is making here. <clears throat> so, he, so he says, um, it was completed by his works and the scripture was, was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God because he obeyed God. He said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I suppose that if you died minutes after you, <laughs> after you made a profession of faith, then, then you could say, okay, you're saved by that faith, simply believing. But that's not what faith is intended to be. Faith is intended to be a call to action. And if there's not an action component to that, if there's not a pursuit of God pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness, then at loving God and loving your neighbor, then then it's not properly faith. It was just something you believed for a few minutes, but it needs to show itself in the outworking of life. He said, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So she already had a fear of the Lord. She told him that. That, that we've been in mortal fear ever since you came out of Egypt because we heard about what happened there and then what happened to Og and Sihon, the, the two kings who we believe to be giant kings, that, that the Lord destroyed them before you. We've lived here in fear, but, but it's still, that's not enough. James says, no, she had to be justified by receiving them and sending them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And it's clear that's always been the case. Habakkuk wouldn't disagree with that at all. Paul wouldn't disagree with that at all. He's always calling his people to action. There always has to be an action call. It can't just be, you know, have faith, believe this is true, and then go be baptized, and then go on your merry way. No, 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 no. That's exactly the wrong idea. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that's the call. It's always a call to action.